would like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're not going to be there long. Uh, today is going to be more of a topical sermon slash Bible study. We live in a world in which conflict is a reality. Everyone faces conflict to some level and to some degree. Everywhere you go, there is conflict. Nations have conflict. You're witnessing conflict right now in the nations. Companies have conflict. They have conflict with other companies. They have conflict within and among themselves. Cities have conflicts. Families have conflicts. Spouses have conflicts with each other. Children have conflicts with one another. Sometimes parents have conflicts with their children. Everywhere you go, there is conflict. Everywhere you go, people are fighting and arguing and bickering and going back and forth with one another. Conflict is everywhere. And the question is, where does conflict come from? Why do we have so much conflict? And the easy answer would be say, well, sin. And that is true. But James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he gives us an answer to the question. Where does conflict come from? Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. The source of all conflict is greed. I want something and you're not giving me what I want. And because you don't give me what I want, or you give me something that I don't think I deserve, or you deny me something that I do deserve, I become upset and angry, and now I'm out to get justice. We all want justice. I'm going to get what I'm owed. I'm going to get what you deserve, you should give me. And I'm going to come after you, and I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. This is not how Christians are called to live. We are not called to live in conflict and contentions and factions. Those are described as deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. Instead, Christians are called to live differently. Romans 12, verse 18. Notice what Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's the opposite of being in conflict. You're not to be in conflict. You're not to be arguing and biting each other and pursuing your own selfish desires. You should be pursuing peace with all men. So the question is, if the world is filled with conflict, if everyone around me is fighting, if I'm going to face conflict at some point in life, how do I live at peace with all men? Jesus gives us the answer. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, we'll look at that later. But he says, if your brother has something against you, go be reconciled to your brother. The answer to conflict is reconciliation. Reconciliation refers to the removal of hostility, the removal of enmity. It actually is a word that refers to exchanging. I'm going to exchange hostility and hatred for peace and friendship. This same word is used to describe what God has done for you. The unregenerate heart hates God. Colossians 1, he says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. Romans 5 says we were enemies of God. And yet God removed the hostility. 
He removed that enmity that was existed between you and God. Colossians 1.22, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He reconciled you. He removed the enmity and gave you a friendly relationship. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In salvation, God reconciled you to himself, and he made peace with you. What did you do to earn that? Nothing. And God expects, and indeed he commands, that you are to be reconciled with one another. That you are not to live at enmity and in open hostility toward one another. You are not to bear grudges, anger, resentment, and bitterness toward other people. We are commanded to live at peace. Psalm 34, 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You can say it another way. Be reconciled to those you have contentions with. Are you carrying anger, bitterness, resentment? Are you harboring a grudge against someone else? You are commanded by God to be reconciled. To remove the enmity. Go make peace. And this morning... I would like to give you the six elements of reconciliation. Six elements of reconciliation so you know how to be reconciled. If you have enmity or hostility with someone else, you know what you need to do. These are elements. These are not steps. All of these should be present at some point in your life. But if you're still in Romans, I want you to look at Romans 12 again, verse 18. I want you to notice what he says. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Did you notice the beginning? If possible, so far as it depends upon you, the reality is some people do not want to reconcile with you. Some people want to have the argument. They want to have the contention. They do not want to have peace and friendship with you. And you are not held accountable by God for their refusal to reconcile. But this morning, I don't want you to focus on other people. I don't want you nudging your spouse. I don't want you looking across the room at someone else in the church. But I do want to give you some indicators if you are not willing to reconcile. How do you know if you are the one blocking reconciliation? Just some indicators that you can look for. First, you abandon the relationship completely. I'm not talking about they don't follow you on Instagram anymore. What I'm talking about is they just give up on the relationship. I'm not going to be around you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to come to church with you. I just don't want to be around you. That's not reconciliation. That's running away. Or if they're physically or verbally violent, the verbally abusive one who yells, screams, curses, calls you names, not interested in reconciliation. That is the opposite of reconciliation. That is conflict. That's the very thing you're not supposed to be doing. Or the argumentative, the confrontational one, who just wants to talk about it. Because if we just talk about it forever and ever and ever, eventually you'll see it my way. Is that seeking reconciliation? No, that's seeking to win an argument. That's contention. 
or the gossip and the slanderer, who instead of coming to you and dealing with the sin with you, they go and tell everyone else about it. And we'll talk more about this later, but just in short, to gossip and slander about someone, the proverb says, is to separate intimate friends. It's an act of hatred. Leviticus 19.15 says, it is murder. You are killing your neighbor. Are you doing those things? Because if you are, you're not pursuing peace. You're not following the command of Scripture. You need to pursue peace by reconciliation. So let's look at the six elements of reconciliation. What are they? The first element of reconciliation. Forgive from the heart. You might say this is the bread and butter of reconciliation. If you don't do this one, none of the others work. You must forgive from the heart. We talked earlier about where, what is the source of conflict. The source of conflict is, I want something, and you're not giving me what I want, so I become angry, and I get upset, and now I'm going to go exact my pound of flesh from you, and I'm going to get what I think I deserve from you. To forgive someone is to say, I am not going to hold you liable anymore. I'm not going to expect you to make that payment. I'm going to release you from the debt. This is forgiveness that happens in the heart. It does not happen verbally yet. This is what you do in your own heart. You are commanded to forgive. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 12, Paul gives a very clear command and he tells you how you are to forgive. I'll start in Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You are commanded to forgive as God has forgiven you. Abundantly, graciously, immediately. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, that is, putting up with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You are to forgive just as God has forgiven you. Okay, well that brings us to another question. How did God forgive us? Turn over in your Bibles, Isaiah 43. And I do encourage you to please follow along in your Bible. I know we're going to be flipping around quite a bit. But it, it's going to be helpful to you. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I wipe them out. They don't exist anymore. And I will not remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. This same idea is repeated. If you go over to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, he's talking about the new covenant, the covenant that you are a member of, that you are a part of. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is in the context of a covenant. 
This is in the context of a promise. When you promise to forgive, what you are promising to do is to no longer remember their sin. That does not mean that God forgets. Forgetting is passive. I came to work a couple weeks ago, came to the church, got into my office, put my stuff down, went to grab my computer and realized, I don't have my computer with me. I have to go back home to get my computer so I can do the work I need to do. That's passively forgetting. God does not forget. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you realize that you don't also forget. God doesn't forget anything. What he's saying here is he intentionally refuses to think on your sin. This is active refusal. I will no longer think about your sin. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to think about it. And if I'm not thinking about it, if it's not filling my heart, it's not going to fill my mouth. I'm not going to speak about it either. I'm not going to come and talk to you about it. I'm not going to go talk to your friends about it. I'm not going to go tell the pastors about it. I'm going to be quiet. I'm not going to think on or dwell on or speak about your sin anymore. It's a promise you are making. And it's a promise you make in your own heart because it's what God has commanded you to do. This is what Peter meant in 1 Peter 4 when he said, love covers a multitude of sin. Love acts as though the sin never happened. To forgive from the heart means you actively, intentionally refuse to think about what that person has done to you. And this is where people will say, well, yeah, but you don't know what they've done. If you knew what they did to me, you would understand, I can't forgive this. Turn your Bibles over to Luke 17. Because I want to deal with the objection that people say, well, I can't forgive. The sin is too great. I cannot forgive this. It's outside of my ability. And I want to show you from Scripture two reasons people do not forgive. Two reasons you do not forgive. If you're harboring anger or bitterness, this is why you do not forgive. It's in Luke 17, starting in verse 3. Jesus tells his apostles, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. You are to forgive constantly. Over and over and over and over, as abundantly as Christ has forgiven you, as often as you go back to Christ for forgiveness, that's how you are to forgive others. And the apostles have the objection. Lord, we can't do this. Look at the next verse. They say, increase our faith. That's another way of saying, Lord, I don't have enough faith to do that. Who did they just blame for their unforgiveness? God, you didn't give me enough faith for this. I can't do this. I can't believe this. And the Lord responds, look, if you had faith like a mustard seed, the smallest little inkling of faith, you could do what I'm asking you to do. There's another problem here. What's the problem? I'm just going to read the rest of this, and then I'll explain it. And the Lord said, if you had faith, well, let me go, verse 7. Which of you, having a slave, plowing and tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too 
when you do all these things which you are commanded. You say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. What's Jesus' point here? The slave recognizes what he is. He recognizes his status in life. And he doesn't expect his master to treat him as something other than a slave. He has a right view of himself. And because he sees himself rightly, he doesn't expect something else. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, so you too need to have a right view of yourself. It's only when we have a wrong view of who we are and what we are that we, for, we refuse to forgive. It's when we start thinking we're better than what we are. When we start thinking our sin isn't that bad, that person's sin is so much greater than mine, that's when we refuse to forgive. When we become self-righteous. It's self-righteousness to say, I cannot forgive. I've never met a person who could honestly say with Paul, I am the worst of all sinners, turn around and then say, I cannot forgive that person. When you are struggling to forgive another person, stop for a few moments and just think about what Christ has forgiven you for and the wickedness and the wretchedness of your own sin. There's another reason people don't forgive. It's in Matthew 18. If you'll turn there, Matthew 18. I told you today's going to be more like a Bible study. Matthew 18, this is right after, starting in verse 21, this is right after Jesus talks about church discipline. Church discipline is the means by which the church purifies itself. It removes people from its midst. And when they come back in repentance, they are to be forgiven. And he tells the parable of an unforgiving slave. Verse 26, well, let, let me back up here. The slave works for the king. He manages the king's finances and the, the assets of the king. And he calls in his slaves to settle accounts. If any of the slaves owe him money, they are to pay up. Verse 24, when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, Israel, the entire nation of Israel, paid in taxes 600 talents of gold. That's the entire nation. This one slave owes the king 10 thousand talents. That's like 13 times the national income. This is an insurmountable debt. He cannot pay it. And he knows it. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The king planned to give this guy justice, to give him exactly what he deserved. And the slave, verse 26, fell to the ground, prostrated himself before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. It's not a promise he could actually keep. There's no way he could repay everything. But he was willing to make the promise just so he could avoid what he deserved. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion. You know, it would have been compassionate if the king would have said, look, um, here's what we're going to do. You owe me 10,000 talents. I'm going to reduce the debt down to 5,000 talents. That would have been compassionate. It would have been compassionate if he would have said, look, you owe me 10,000 talents. You can't pay it, so let's put you on a payment plan until you can finish the payment. That would have been compassionate. What he received was something far greater than that. 
Notice at the end of that verse, he felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. All of it wiped out. You owe me nothing. What did the slave do to earn it? Nothing. What could he have done to earn it? Nothing. All of it was wiped out. Verse 28, that slave then leaves the king's presence and he goes out and he finds another slave who owes him 100 denarii. Now, people, I've heard people say, look, 100 denarii isn't that much. It's not a big debt. It's a few pennies. A denarius was one day's wage. This other slave owes him wages for 100 days. Imagine working and your boss doesn't pay you for 100 days. That's a significant debt. It's pittance compared to what this guy owed the king. But he goes out, finds this other slave, grabs him by the throat, and begins to choke him. And says, pay back what you owe. And his fellow slave, verse 29, fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Said almost the exact same words. So why wasn't he able, why didn't he refuse why didn't he forgive him? Why didn't he treat his fellow slave in the same way? Is it because he was financially strapped and he just couldn't pull it off? No, look at the next verse. But he was unwilling. When all is said and done, unforgiveness boils down to an unwillingness. I don't want to forgive you. It's not a matter of, I can't forgive you. I don't want to forgive you. I'm not willing to forgive you. And if there's a part of you right now that looks at this wicked slave and says, how could he? Just remember, that's you and I every time we refuse to forgive. As wicked as this slave seems to you, when you do not forgive, just look in the mirror because that's the same guy. You owed a debt you could not pay. It was far greater than you would ever be able to pay off, and he wiped it out at no cost to you. Go to the end of that passage, verse 33. The king goes and finds this slave, and he says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35, and my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. To forgive from your heart has nothing to do with what the other person does. It has nothing to do with their repentance. It has nothing to do with what they say or how they behave. It has to do with what you do in your heart. You are commanded to forgive. And an unwillingness to forgive says there's a real problem at home. In your heart. And it is only when you have forgiven them from the heart, when you have released them from that obligation, when you're no longer angry and bitter and resentful, when you no longer have a grudge, then you are qualified to move on to the next elements of reconciliation. But until you forgive, you stop right there. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. You stop until you're able to forgive. So what's the next element of reconciliation? Next element of reconciliation is confrontation. Confrontation. Well, wait, I thought we were talking about getting rid of conflict, and now you're talking about confronting people. 
No, biblical confrontation. This happens only after you have forgiven. And there's only two reasons you would confront someone over a sin. Notice I said you confront people over sin. You don't confront people over your opinions. You don't confront people over preferences. You don't confront people over they didn't do it the way you think they should have done it. Confrontation is over sin. So how do I know which sins I should confront them on? Should every time I see someone sin in the church, should I go and confront them on it? There's two ways you can do this. Two ways to know when you need to confront. First one, when it's for the good of that person. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not seek its own. Philippians 2, he said, consider others as more valuable than yourself, as more important than you. Always look out for the good of someone else. You confront when it's for their good, when not confronting them would bring them serious harm and damage. Second reason you would confront, when it's for the glory of Christ. Their sin is bringing reproach to the name of Christ, and for you to sit there and to allow them to continue without confronting them would continue to bring reproach on Christ. Biblical confrontation begins with forgiveness. And it begins with an assumption. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things, love hopes all things. Biblical confrontation begins with you believing the best about the person you're confronting. And I want to show you that to you. You're already in Matthew 18, so you don't have to go anywhere. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, that's a third class conditional clause. That is to say that the action is likely but uncertain. It's likely that the person has sinned, but I'm not certain about it. Which means I'm not going to go to my brother and point my finger in their face and jab them in the chest and say, how dare you? I'm going to go tentatively. Because I'm going to assume the best about them. I know, I'm going to borrow Hector for a minute. I think Hector sinned or something. And I say, you know what? I know Hector. Hector wouldn't do that. That's not like him. That's so out of character. Do you see how I'm assuming the best? And I'm going to go to him and I'm going to ask him about it. I want to hear his side of what happened. This could be a misunderstanding. I could have my facts wrong. I go to him tentatively. And I go to him to show him his fault. Fault here is not saying... I go him to show him why I disagree with what he decided to do. Fault here is talking about a sin. Which means you're confronting over something that's in the Bible. And I've had people tell me, well, I, I'm not going to do that because I don't know book, chapter, and verse. Then you shouldn't be confronting anybody. If you don't know where it is in the Bible, if you can't show them the sin from Scripture, then you aren't even convinced it's a sin. James 3 says, let not many of you become teachers, for they will incur a stricter judgment for you to go and tell someone you're in sin and you don't know, is to bring judgment upon yourself. You need to be confident that what you're bringing to them is actually a sin in the Word of God. That the Bible supports your claim. Also notice, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. 
in private. There is no place in Scripture for telling other people about somebody's sin. There is no place for gathering a group together and spreading around that sin. And usually when this happens, what they'll do is they'll phrase their gossip in a very pious way. Hey, brother, I I need to talk to you. You know so-and-so, you really should pray for them. And of course, at that point, everyone's like, oh, what's going on? Well, let me tell you what this person did. And they start rattling off everything that you did. And you're not even there to defend yourself. You're tried and convicted before you even know what happened. The Bible calls this gossip and slander. There's no place for that in Scripture. Talking about others, talking to others about the sin doesn't bring peace. It brings division. Proverbs 17, 9, He who conceals the transgression seeks love, but he who repeats the matter separates intimate friends. Our goal here is reconciliation. Our goal is the restoration of relationships, not dividing them. And if, they're, if you're out there talking about it to other people, you're not seeking reconciliation. You're dividing friends. It's unloving. And in fact, in Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all transgressions. If I want to be loving, I'm going to keep your sin between you and me. I'm going to cover it in forgiveness. I'm not going to go and tell others about it. If I want to be hateful, I'm going to go tell the whole world what you did. Telling others about it is the sin of gossip and slander. And when someone comes to you and says, hey, let me tell you about somebody else. Let me share a whole bunch of negative information. You have two things to do. One, tell them to stop. Rebuke them and say, this is sinful gossip. I don't want to hear it. And if they refuse to stop, you break fellowship. Walk away. Because it's sinful for you to listen to it. Proverbs 20, 19, he who goes about as a slander or reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. Don't listen to it. Don't give it an ear. Don't believe it. And the longer you listen to it, Proverbs says, it goes down like sweet morsels. And once it's in, it's hard to get out. Once you've listened to it, it's permanently distorted your view of that person. That is not how you reconcile. You go to your brother in private. You show him the sin from Scripture. The last thing I want you to see here about confrontation. Look at the end of Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The goal here is not to humble him. It's not your job to humble anybody. The goal here is not to humiliate. The goal here is to win him over. To convince him to repent. It's not to get a pound of flesh. It's not to win an argument. It's to lovingly come alongside a brother or sister and plead with them. Please turn from your sin to show them in Scripture. And it's as if they turn, you have won your brother. In fact, Galatians 6.1 gives us the requirement for confronting someone. It says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. What does it mean by being spiritual? A lot of people talk about being spiritual today. In context, it means that you are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. 
And when you are manifesting those and you go to your brother or your sister, you plead with them to win them over. And if you're not manifesting those, don't. Let the Holy Spirit do his job. You forgive from the heart, and then you go pray for them that the Spirit would convict them. This brings us to our next element of reconciliation. Confession. Confession. You're in Matthew already. Go over to Matthew chapter 7. Probably not the passage you were expecting me to go to for confession. We typically think of confession as being the other person come and confess to me. But I want to just give you a thought that maybe confession is how you should start your confrontation. If you've had conflict with someone else, Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's rebuking hypocrisy. Look at verse 2. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Here's the idea. The speck is the sin, or the log is the sin. And you go to somebody else, and you're trying to pick out this little tiny eyelash out of their eye, or a little tiny splinter out of their eye. But while you're doing that, you've got a two-by-four coming out of your eyeball you're probably not in a position that you can do that. And he says, first, if you're going to confront someone, take the log out of your own eye. Because you can't even see the speck in your brother's eye unless you first remove the log. If you don't deal with your sin first, you don't have the spiritual capacity to see the sin of someone else. You don't have the ability to point out their sin. You need to repent first. Deal with your own sin. If we would all just start looking at ourselves first and dealing with our own sin, we wouldn't have time to point out the sin of someone else. There would be a lot less conflict in the world if people would just focus on their walk with Christ. And for you to go to them and point out the little speck in their eye while you've got this massive log in your eye, is hypocrisy. Matthew 7, verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When you go to confront someone about a conflict that you've had with them, why don't you start with you? I'm not saying that in every confrontation, both sides of sin, that's not always true. But it should always start by looking at yourself and examining yourself. Are you truly pure in this? Have you sinned? And if you had, have, begin with you. Begin by confessing your sin first. Put yourself on the same plane as the person you're confronting. You'll get a much better reception. So, how do you confess? Turn over to James 5. James 5, verse 16, he gives us this simple command. James 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The word he uses here for confess is homilageo. It just means to say the same thing. In 1 John 1, 9, it's used as to confess to God. In that sense, it means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. 
Here in James 5, it's not talking about confessing to God. It's talking about confessing to one another, confessing to another person. And the idea here is that the confession is reciprocal. Both parties are confessing to each other. Each one is focusing on their own sin. And each one is saying the same thing about their sin that the other person would say about it. Which means if I came and I told you a lie, when I come to confess my lie, I shouldn't say, well, I kind of bent the truth a little. Oh, I I was mistaken. Oh, I misspoke there. No, I need to call it what it is. I lied to you. I need to speak about it in the same way that you would speak about my sin. The same way that God would speak about my sin. Confess it openly, honestly. Confession should also be prayerful. Notice he says, confess your sins one to the other and pray for one another. Before you go and confront, before you make a confession, you need to spend some time in prayer. You need to pray for you. You need to pray for the person you're confessing to. And if you're going to receive a confession, you need to pray for the person who's confessing to you. And you need to pray for yourself as well that you would be gracious and forgiving. Confessions should be open. They should be specific. They should be targeted. What do I mean by targeted? You confess to the person you've sinned against. You confess to people that have been hurt by your sin. You don't confess to everybody in the world. If I sin against Pastor Michael, my confession is going to Pastor Michael. It's not going to the whole church. I don't need to confess it to anybody else. Now, if I sin against multiple people in the church, I'm going to go to multiple people and I'm going to confess to each one of them. Why? Because they have something against me. I've sinned against them. And they are carrying that sin. They are carrying that hurt. And I need to go back to them and acknowledge my sin so that we can relieve that. We can remove that hostility. Confessions should also be immediately. When I was a kid, my grandfather had a garden. I learned something about gardening. The sooner you pluck the weeds, the less damage that they do. But if you let the weeds keep growing for a while, you're not going to have a very good garden. The same thing with your relationships. Some of you need to go pluck some weeds. Because you've got sin that's been sitting there for weeks or months or years that you have not dealt with. And they are damaging the relationship. And an open, honest, sincere confession is the means by which you can remove that hostility. Confess specific, targeted confessions. They should be quick. Confessions should also be empathetic. Empathetic. That is to say, confession should recognize that what I did to you wasn't some meaningless, trivial little act. I hurt you. And I need to recognize the damage that my sin has caused in your life. The damage that my sin has caused in our relationship. These are just some of the elements of a good confession. They're not all of them. But I do want to let you know that there is a personal benefit to confession. 
Nobody likes to go and confess. I'll be the first one to tell you that. I don't like going and confessing. Nobody enjoys it. But there is a benefit to doing it. It brings peace. David talked about his confession to the Lord. Psalm 32, he said, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's the means by which you lift the burden of guilt. That you can restore that relationship and go back to them with peace in your heart. When you refuse to forgive, you just carry that with you forever. And it forever damages your relationship. Go back and confess your sin. This brings us to our next element, repentance. Repentance. There's a lot that I could say on repentance. I, I can't say all of it, and I'm not even going to be able to say all that I should say. But I just want to take you to one passage, Ephesians 4. He gives us a good teaching on repentance. In Ephesians 4, starting in, let's say, starting in verse 20, he says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. And then he goes in to explain how they're supposed to live now that they know Christ. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Lay aside the old life. Lay aside the old practices. Lay aside the old sin. If you go to the gym and you work out really hard, and you get all sweaty and nasty and you get home, you take those dirty clothes off, you jump in the shower. That's the idea. You take it off and you leave it off. You put off the old behavior. Repentance is the idea of a change in mind that leads to a change in direction, a change in behavior. And oftentimes, this is where we stop. Well, I'm not doing that sinful behavior anymore. Therefore, I've repented. But that's always going to be short-lived. Because verse 22 says, Lay aside the old life, verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When you sin, it's not just enough to recognize that what you did was wrong. You have to go back and examine the thinking that led you to that sin. And analyze, what is it that I believe this sin was going to do for me? And then renew your mind. Go into Scripture. See what Scripture says about that sin. Find out what God really thinks about what you've done. Let it hit you hard. And then find out what God wants you to do next time. And put that on. Verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Take off one, put on another. And if you think that this passage is not talking about behavior, jump down a little bit. Verse 25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, same terminology, lay aside telling lies and speak the truth, each one of you. When does a liar cease to be a liar? It's not when he stops telling lies. He ceases to be a liar when he starts telling the truth. 
that's when you know you have truly repented. Jump down a little bit further, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Put off one, put on the other. Let me give you a quick application of this principle. We were talking about forgiveness earlier. Have you ever had someone sin against you and it's just running in your head and you can't seem to get the thought out of your mind? And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll practice the first side. We'll put off the thought. And then we'll leave our mind blank and empty. And we never put anything on in its place. And then the next thing you know, you've got all these thoughts rushing back in about that sin. Instead, you recognize those thoughts are sinful, they are unforgiveness. You put them off, and then you put on the thoughts that God wants you to have. What's a good thought to replace that? Spend some time thinking about what Christ has done for you and all the sin he's forgiven you for. And it'll make it so much easier for you to forgive someone else. And the more you do that, the more it'll become a habit to no longer think about that sin. And that sin, while you'll still remember it, will move into the back of your mind and it'll no longer be a cause of anger and resentment. This brings us to our next element. We've talked about repentance. Let's look at the next one. Verbal forgiveness. The first time we talked about forgiveness, we were talking about just what happens in your own heart. What you do absent the other person. That's found in Mark 11, verse 25. Notice what he says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will forgive you your transgressions. Notice the open-ended blanket statement. You are commanded to forgive, no matter what the other person does. But in Luke 17, we looked at that passage earlier. He says this, Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Notice how here, forgiveness is dependent upon repentance. If your brother repents, forgive him. The command to forgive in the heart is always present. You are are commanded to forgive no matter what the other person does. But your verbal expression of that forgiveness, I forgive you, is dependent upon their repentance. And notice in Luke 17.3, he does not say, well, if they meet all these standards of repentance. It just merely says, if he comes to you saying, I repent, forgive. No place for you to put him up to a test. No place for you to say, well, I'm going to wait a little while before I forgive. I want to see if you're truly going to change. There's no place for that. If he says, I repent, you forgive. Well, wait a minute. Are you saying if they don't repent, I shouldn't say I forgive you? That's exactly what I'm saying. To tell someone, I forgive you of a sin, even though you're not even willing to recognize it as sin, even though you're not willing to turn from it, even though you're not in any way repentant of it or sorry for it, is to take sin lightly. It's to say, I'm okay with your sin. When they come to you and they say, I repent, then you give them the promise of forgiveness. The forgiveness that you've already given them in your heart. Which is why forgiveness of the heart was the first thing we talked about. Because if at this point you have not forgiven them, for you to say, I forgive you, is a lie. You shouldn't lie to them. You should make the promise that you've already done. 
Okay. We've talked about forgiveness of the heart, confrontation, confession, repentance, verbal forgiveness. Last one. Last one. Restoration. Restoration. Restoration refers to restoring the relationship to its previous condition. Restoring it back to what it was before the sin occurred. And this should be your desire. You should desire to get the relationship back to what it was before or better. And you should, if you're truly repentant, you should be willing to do what it takes to get the relationship back. To right the wrongs. To correct failures. To compensate for your whatever destruction you caused. If you've deceived your spouse, you should be willing to do whatever it takes to restore that trust. If a husband's had an affair, his repentance should include wanting to restore her trust in him and to do anything that is necessary. Not having his own email accounts, letting his wife have full access to his phone and all electronic devices. This is just a basic, I want to restore trust with you. And oftentimes you see people who say, well, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. You're not actually repentant. You caused the damage. And now if you really want to have reconciliation, you should want and desire to repair the damage that you've caused. And if you have sinned, understand that restoration takes time. It does take time. It's hard work. And it will cost you something. Oftentimes restoration costs you a lot. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Meets Jesus, and what does he tell Jesus? Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will give back four times as much. I'm going to make them whole again. I'm going to restore them again. His repentance included a willingness to restore what he stole. And you should be willing to restore what you've damaged and restore that relationship. You should be willing. It's not always possible. That's the sad part. Sometimes sin has consequences that you can't overcome. That you cannot fix. Restoration does not always equal or excuse me, reconciliation does not always equal restoration. And I'm just going to give you three quick examples so you can see this. First, it does not equal restoration, or restoration cannot happen when restoration would put an innocent third party in danger. I'm going to use the most extreme circumstance I can. Imagine an uncle who abuses a three-year-old little girl, his niece. He goes to prison. He has a credible testimony of coming to faith in Christ. He comes out, he shows all the evidence of forgiveness just a few years later, and repentance. Is there anyone here who would want to say that we should restore that man's relationship to that little girl just as it was before? That would be sinful beyond belief. Her parents are entrusted with her to protect her. And it would be a danger to her to do that. And it would be sinful against him because we know he's tempted in that way. And as a brother in Christ, we wouldn't want to tempt him again. So reconciliation there would not equal restoration. They cannot be fully restored. 
the relationship will not go back to the way it was before. Second, reconciliation does not result in restoration when it comes to a leadership position in the church. The requirements for church leaders are very clear in Scripture. And if an elder or deacon falls in such a way that they have to step down, they can and should be forgiven by the church. And they should be received and welcomed into the body if they're repentant. But that does not mean that they can be restored back to the position of leadership because they are no longer above reproach. Third, reconciliation is not possible, or restoration is not possible when the person refuses to repent of their sin. And I'll give this example. If a husband is beating his wife, in this church, we would ask her to move out of the house and to protect herself. But I am not going to encourage her to move back until I am certain that he is repentant. And she should not move back in until she is certain he is repentant. And if he refuses and says, no, I'm just going to keep beating my wife, I can't restore that relationship. Okay, I've given you those three. How do I prove that from Scripture, that reconciliation does not always equal restoration? First, uh, First Corinthians 7, verse 15. He's talking about marriage. You know, the bond that should never be broken. God says, I hate divorce. And in verse 10, he tells them, if a woman leaves her husband and she wants to get married again, she needs to go back to her husband. Verse 15. If there's an unbelieving and a believing spouse, and the unbelieving one departs, Paul says, let him leave. That's a command. It's an imperative. Let them go if the unbelieving spouse departs. He says the brother or sister is not under bondage. In our human world, we would say, no, no, no. Reconciliation requires that I do everything to hold on to this. And force the person to stay. And what's the reason Paul says you let the unbelieving one depart? End of the verse. But God has called us to peace. Reconciliation here is achieved by not restoring the relationship. Because the longer the believer adamantly and tenaciously holds on to that person, the more that person becomes angry and embittered, and that bitterness is displayed against not only the spouse, but against Christ, who's forcing the spouse to hold on to them. Reconciliation there does not equal restoration. All right. I have one last thing I need to show you. We've been talking about reconciliation. And I hope that by now you see how important reconciliation is and how important it is that you live at peace with all men. I would like you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. And this is the last thing I want to show you. It's important. I want to show you just how important this is to the Lord. I want you to see that God is not playing around when he says he's called you to peace and you are to be reconciled. That you are not to live at enmity and hostility with other people. Verse 21, Matthew 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And the Pharisees at that point said, oh, yeah, we're, we're good to go. I've never murdered anybody. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. 
And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell fire. God doesn't think your little grudge that you're holding on to is just a small thing. He doesn't think anger, bitterness, and resentment is just, oh, just a tiny little thing. No big deal. He says, no, if you're harboring anger against your brother, you are guilty of murder. Reconciliation matters. You need to be reconciled. You want to see another way that God views this as being very important? Look at the next verse. 23, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. You come to church to worship, and you realize you've sinned against your brother, and he has something against you. And you haven't dealt with it. You haven't resolved it. You haven't tried to reconcile. Notice what he says, verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. God says, look, if your horizontal relationships aren't right, if you haven't done what you need to do to be reconciled, don't bother coming to church. I don't want your worship. Because in holding on to the grudge and refusing to reconcile, you're denying everything that Christ died for. You need to be willing to reconcile. Can you reconcile with all men? No. But you can forgive. You can have peace. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Let's take these elements and make sure they're in our lives. Are these a reality in your life? Do you practice these things when you face conflict? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you you've given us instruction on how to live, that you've given us instruction on how we can live at peace with others, that you have commanded us to live at peace, to be reconciled to each other, that you've given us such a great example in Christ, that Christ reconciled us to you, that he was willing to remove the enmity. He was willing to remove the hostility. Help us to be the kind of people that are willing to do the same that we would not harbor grudges and resentment, but that we would be forgiving, and that we would live at peace with each other and those in the world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.